One of the industries highlighted as being a major area of concern for suicide was the building industry. In Queensland, apprentices and other young workers in the building industry are twice as likely to commit suicide compared to the national average for other young men. And in 2003, it was reported that over a four-month period, 41% of all construction industry deaths were related to suicide. In 2006, a major report was commissioned into suicide in the Queensland building and construction industry. Amongst its findings into the reasons for the high rates of suicide in this field in particular, it noted that there appears to be a culture within the industry that endorses heavy alcohol use, bullying behaviours directed towards apprentices specifically. And it went on to say that the high rates among the younger workers in that current study could be related to the pressures associated with joining a masculine industry, which, as reported from focus groups, has a bullying culture, particularly directed towards apprentices and those new to the industry. Now, with over 20 years' experience in the building industry, my next guest... Adam Warburton, has written a blog with Tony Steedson, who is a bricklayer by trade. The blog's title lifts the lid on the bullying culture within the building industry and asks us to deeply consider why we have allowed this culture to proliferate when clearly it serves no one, neither the abuser nor the abused. Now, that um, article, I will I will link to this blog, but for now, I have live and in-person Adam Warburton on the radio. Welcome, Adam, to Triple H on International Men's Day. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. It's been really beautiful to, um, while I've been doing the research, it was great to come across your blog that really calls out the abuse that goes on within the industry and actually looks at something that has been taken as normal, which clearly isn't normal. So could you set the scene and tell us a little about what goes on in that building uh, industry and the image that it puts forward? Yeah, look, I suppose the the interesting thing about the building industry, it's very similar to the mining industry or, for that matter, the uh, shipping industry in that they're heavily male-dominated industries. Um, something like 98% of all workers in, in construction or around that affect a, a male. And so we actually have an opportunity to look at um, a cross-section of society of what we would actually look like um, perhaps if we we didn't have women in the world, and, and I know I sound that sounds strange, but I'm always reminded when I think of the construction industry of that that famous movie uh, Lord of the Flies, um, which was a movie basically about saying what what would happen to to civilization without civility. But what was really interesting about that movie it was all boys that were lost on an island in a plane crash and. Gradually, they they succumb to, um, I, I suppose, like a, a primitive state, if you like. And in a lot of ways, it's very reflective of construction. Um, construction is a very, very physical trade, a very, very tough trade to be part of. Um, and what it has invariably happened, if you look at the culture of building, is that that toughness gets transferred from just being a physical thing becoming an emotional thing and so in construction um, guys are very open in one sense and that they're very direct but in, in another sense uh, guys don't talk about much at all and it's a very restrictive industry if you like in, in terms of expression and it if you wanted if you wanted to describe hyper masculinity 
the first thing that would come to mind, to be honest, is a tradesman. And that's a, that is an image that is, um, and through no fault of their own, but if you look at any of the building shows on television, um, if you look at the media, if you look at uh, the unions themselves, that form of masculinity is actually celebrated, very, very much so. Mm. And so when a young kid comes into the industry, it's, to be honest, quite a shock because uh, I, I know that we all experience bullying to varying degrees at, in high school. Um, and high school in itself can be very, very harsh for a kid. But when he hits the building industry, it's different. And he's, he's in an industry that, uh, if I may say, has a lot of pressures placed upon it um, from the top down. Um, there's a lot of pressure on time. There's a lot of financial pressures, and, and maybe it's not different to a lot of other industries in that regard. But there's a lot of pressure when a kid comes into that industry, and if an apprentice is expecting support from his boss, say in a fatherly way, the chances are he's not going to get it. And what he's actually going to get is um, a very hard, hard approach to the way he's taught to learn his trade, um, and, and one might even say abusive. Um, and the end result is, even if we don't talk about suicide, we have an industry with an incredibly high burnout rate. Um, most guys that you speak to by the age of 40, they want out of the industry somehow. And the only reason they're still in it is because they don't know what else to do. Now, that's a huge indictment on an industry that really is a, is a major cornerstone of, of, of economics. The fact that by the time you get to 40, most men don't want to be in it. And uh, to me, that says a lot about the problems that we've got to start addressing in this industry if we really want to understand why suicide is actually so high. Do you think that it's both physical and emotional pressures that they feel under? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, the physical pressure is actually not that difficult to deal with. And to be honest, if you really sat a man down and talked to about uh, um him about what he does. He actually loves being on the tools. It's, it's quite rewarding. But all of the other pressures that go with it, the time, the deadlines, the unrealistic deadlines, um, the kind of make-it-happen type mentality that, that rules the industry, that's what guys react to. And in that reaction, what they tend to do is shut down. Um, you know, when you're faced with that, you have two choices. You either feel it to its core um, of how devastating that kind of culture is, or you toughen up and you pretend it doesn't exist and you become one of the boys. And unfortunately, that is the approach that nearly all men take because that's the type of masculinity that we're, we're taught to embody and live by. And it was very interesting listening to your, your former speaker there talk about that exact thing that we've got to open up and express. But what's very interesting is when you look at men, they know they want to express, but quite often when they go to open up, they physically can't. Mm. And, and we call it a, a mental health thing or we call it a, you know, a psychological thing. But in truth, that lack of ability to express vulnerability is actually a physical issue. In other words, when, when a guy wants to express and say, I love you, there's something about the way that his body is physically, from the way he has physically hardened himself to the world, that actually makes that a lot more difficult to 
to do. It's very interesting that you you talk about that and you take it there because um, an interview that I've done that I'm not sure I'll have time to play today um, was with um, Megan Adrian, who I'll play tomorrow if I don't get to it today. And it does talk about the correlation between the body and the emotions and actually being able to express uh, they have to they have to be able to connect with their body first because the hardening that that is lived um, means that they don't recognize emotions in the same way and really saying I love you is no different in terms of the the protection as uh, being able to express a frustration on a building site without it actually getting into anger and then being misunderstood and then frustration and so on and so forth and then you're in an anger management group before you know it. Look, it's a really good point and um, I didn't really know how this interview was going to unfold because really 20 minutes isn't enough to talk about this problem. Mm-hmm. But look, at the root cause, if you really look at suicide, um, there's, there's two things. The first is that we, we need to be very delicate with this subject because it is a very delicate subject. But, but ultimately, suicide is is, a, is irresponsible. It, it, it's hugely irresponsible, and, and that's something that has to be acknowledged. But what is the irresponsibility? Because by the time a person goes to commit suicide, they actually don't feel like they have another choice, and that's understandable. And so how do you ultimately prevent suicide? Well... The answer is ultimately very simple in that it's connection. And the only way I can really support that by way of evidence is if, I mean, this is a Sydney channel and you guys would be very familiar with, there was a gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment, but I think he was called the Angel of Darling Harbour, was it? Yes. Uh, no, The Gap. The Gap. At The Gap, the Angel of the Gap, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, Don Ritchie. Yeah. So over the years, he saved something like 160 people from yeah. suicide. Yeah. And, and the story goes, well, how did you do it? And he said, I just used to ask them how they were and ask them down for a cup of tea. Yeah, connection. But the truth is, is yeah. that in that moment, those people felt that someone was actually meeting them for who they were. Yeah. And that is so powerful. And if you actually take that back to the building industry, that doesn't happen because you've got men who've grown up in the same hardship um, who just don't know how to connect with other men or, or connect with their apprentices. And I, and I suppose what I wanted to come back to um, in terms of, of physicality is that men don't realise how harsh they are and they've lost connection with their bodies. And as a result of that, when they speak in frustration or anger towards their apprentice, for example, I would say that most of them honestly do not know how harsh that is sounding. Mm. And if they did, they'd perhaps be more reflective upon it. And so when you talk about feeling uh, emotions and being able to express and and feel what is going on, um, which is you you can't just rely on the mind. And, you know, so so many men, when they try to first rationalize, deal with their, you know, psychologically what's going on, they're very quick to rationalize and reason. But they're trying to reason with something that is not reasoning or reasonable Mm. and quite often you feel emotions towards things that you you can't reason with Um, and so the relationship to understanding 
um, and learning to open up and express actually is something that comes from physicality, from the body, and not necessarily from the reasoning mind. Because if it did, we'd have a lot more success with dealing with this problem than we currently do. Yeah, and part of this is actually rebalancing what people call normal. So if you've grown up in a house where you're being shouted at the whole time, then actually it's quite normal to speak to someone else like that. And you might actually think that you might soften it slightly and think that you're being kinder or more caring, but actually you've... you've <laughs> your, your bar for normal is so skewed that actually it still comes across as abusive. So these young apprentices coming in, they might have come from that. And so, you know, the softening, the, sl- the little, the toning down of the, uh, the harsh way of speaking might well be uh, fine for them because it's better than what they get at home. But also uh, it just might be normal, might be what they expect. So there is a, there is a lot of... Normalisation is definitely part of it. And when you look at masculinity per se, it's really an emerta. Or, or by that mean there's a, there's a silent agreement amongst all men. And that is that you don't, you don't mention the way men are, basically. We don't, we don't talk about it. And I remember growing up as a, as a young boy and um, sport's very similar um, in that it's quite brutal. And when you're, when you're a kid playing sport, it's treated differently to when you get to, say, rep level or you get to A grade and you play amongst men. Mm. And it's quite brutal. And the thing is, when you're a young boy, you are clocking men. And I was very interested in what that last speaker said about, you know, men say one thing, but they don't live it. And, and you know, young, young kids, uh, boys and girls, they're not silly. They're very, very perceptive of the world that it is and very, very vulnerable to, to um, or very, very easily able to work out what makes the world work and yeah. what will be acceptable and what won't. And so young boys aren't stupid. They know they're tender. They know they're open. They know they're expressive. But when they look out to role models in the world, what role model do they have? So they very, very quickly work out how to play the game. And so, you know, the level of shutdown that occurs occurs well before 17 for men. Mm. You know, it occurs more around the age of 10, 11, 12 especially. So young. Yeah, and it's a conscious choice. Uh, Young boys... I know we say it's subconscious, and, and a lot of the time it is, but at some point the boy does look at the world and, and decide that, well, that's the way men are and that's the way I should be too. Mm. Now, um, changing slightly, one of the comments in the blog that really struck me was it, it, we, you talk about the culture of the environment and we can do this as a, we can do this specifically with the building industry or we can do it you know, more nationally, globally. It's the individuals who make culture and not the other way around. And that's very important because what you're talking about here is that we can be that change that we want to see in the world. We don't have to wait for the culture to change. You know, it may never, but we can start that change. And if enough people do, we actually change a culture. Look, one person can enact change. Mm. And one person in truth can enact change. Um, you know, one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, 16, 32, 64, So, you know, it's it very easily to get overwhelmed by, by culture and, and, and give up. And that's the problem, is that too many people know something is wrong, mm. but they give up in the face of it and say, well, I'll just put up and shut up. Mm. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy culture, mm. like. 
Um, and it isn't comfortable. It isn't comfortable to to make a difference. It isn't comfortable to to be to be different, um, especially if you walk a certain way that that um, by the way you walk actually you know makes people feel uncomfortable because they can see you're making choices that they know they could easily make. Which you know, men in, men in building once you get to know them, they're not tough and rough. Yeah, and they want to open up and they want to engage but they need to feel safe. And the problem with the building industry is you don't feel safe from the moment you walk on the site. And I'm not talking physical safety in terms of health and safety. I'm talking here about feeling safe enough to express. Mm. And because men don't feel safe, they don't open up and they will not open up until they feel safe. Right. Your safety is a huge, huge thing for men. They, they need to feel safe in order to feel that they won't be judged and, and um, ridiculed for, as the previous caller said, for, for feeling vulnerable. Yeah, and funnily enough, that's the strength of, of his workshops, which was what really struck me, was how he creates that space, because he knows that you have to create that space for men to feel, to allow themselves to feel vulnerable in front of other men, because that's not the experience that you've had in the past, that it's safe. So now, how are you bringing change to your workplace? It's a good question because the first thing is you can't be attached to bringing change to your workplace. Mm. And it comes back to a little bit of what I was saying before is that if you think you're going to go out there and change the world, then that's that's a huge burden on your shoulders. And the truth is it's not... It's not each individual's responsibility to change the world, but it is their responsibility to live what they, they believe is true. So, without perfection, because the building industry has a lot of constrictions that make it uh, quite stressful, um, I'm a building foreman, so I have responsibilities to see things finished on time, etc., etc. And there's a lot of stuff outside of your control, so frustration is a big issue for anyone in the in the building industry. But that aside, the thing that I, I try to treasure most with, with everybody I meet is to actually meet them and realise that they're not a resource. My, my industry has this horrible thing of calling people resources. They don't even call it labour anymore. They're called resources. Oh, you just need to increase your resources is what I get told at work. And they get more resources in. But what is a resource? The resource is a human being. And a human being is full of imperfections and frailties. And so you're not talking about, you know, putting another computer chip in a computer. You're very, very restrained by physicality when it comes to building. And so I'm very, very respectful of that. I'm very, very respectful of the fact that men need to learn to look after themselves. I'm very respectful of the fact as well that if you ask a man to deliver, because of the imposition we place on men and, and this ideal they carry that their, their worth is defined by what they do, the chances are they'll do whatever you ask them to do, do just to prove it, just to prove that they can. And so sometimes you have to protect men from themselves and you've got to say, hey, you need a break, you know. Mm. And it's that element of humanity that we've got to bring back to building and that, that's what I tend to do in my position most of the time. Apart from the fact, as I said, to me it's about connection and it's always about connecting with people beyond what they bring by way of their qualifications. So, yes, a guy comes to me and I respect him as a plumber, 
but when I talk to him, I don't talk to him as a tradesman or a plumber. I, I just meet him as, as I would any other person in the street. And that in itself is actually what's needed in this industry. We've got to break the bubble um, where we identify each other by the roles we play and, and get beyond that if we really want to see change. Thank you very much. I'm going to make it a standalone um, interview afterwards so people can listen back to it because uh, there's a lot in there, Adam, and I really appreciate you taking the time to try and share a big subject in a short amount of time. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Lucy. Uh, No doubt we will have a longer conversation, perhaps, where we can expand on some of those subjects. Sure, anytime. Lovely. Take care. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. So, well, there you go. As Albert Einstein says, the world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. And clearly, Adam is not a bystander, and he isn't attached to changing his uh, workplace. He is the change in his workplace, and hopefully by inspiration, it it, uh, shows others how to connect and how to be with each other. So... Uh, a great conversation to have there and I'm sure that if you listen back to that interview you will find um, a lot in there that is worth contemplating and uh, listening to further.